Let us pray. God, in this season of preparing, of waiting, of hoping, take our ears and hear through them, take our minds and think through them, take our hearts and set them on fire. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. So uh, two weeks ago, um, I learned a term that I had never heard before. It was actually part of the answer to the acrostic puzzle in the Sunday New York Times Magazine, which doesn't really have anything to do with the sermon. But if you like to do puzzles, the acrostic is a fun one to work. The answer to the acrostic is always an excerpt from a book. And two weeks ago, it was an excerpt from a book by Melissa Dahl titled Cringeworthy. And here's the quote. Perhaps you've heard of the reminiscence bump. That's the term I'd never heard before. Perhaps you've heard of the reminiscence bump, a term psychologists use to describe the way episodes that occur between 10 and 30 tend to be recalled more vividly than those that occur earlier or later in life. The reminiscence bump. So psychologists, researchers have observed that as we grow older, 40, 50, and so on, we tend to remember most intensely what happens to us from the ages of about 10 to about the age of 30. And the, and the height of this reminiscence bump is kind of in your mid-20s. And there's several explanations for why this could be, but all of them recognize that it's in those years that we make a lot of decisions about who we're going to be and about how we're going to live. I mean, early in our teens, right, we start to um, wrestle with our sexual identity. You know, in the late teens, we're starting to think about whether we're going to go to college or not. So all those questions about who we're going to be, what we're going to do, where we're going to live, whether we're going to get married, what matters most to us, what we believe, whether we're going to come to church or not. I remember going off to college and realizing for the first time in my life, nobody was going to be urging me to go anywhere on Sunday morning. I was going to figure out pretty quickly whether I believe this stuff or not. Turns out I do. Those are significant moments in our lives, significant movements in our lives, and so they become significant memories. So if you're 40 or 50 or older, I bet you can look back and remember some of those episodes pretty vividly. I remember going to junior high. Some of you are in junior high, I bet. Well, I know you are because you were here for class earlier. I remember that was the first time we had lockers. I don't remember my combination, but I remember. I remember going from class to class, I remember as a small, I was a little boy, I was a little kid, a small seventh grader looking at eighth grade boys thinking, I think those guys are shaving. Apparently, we're growing up pretty quickly here. Um, maybe you remember your first job, your first paycheck. I was a paper boy for the Lodi News Sentinel. I did not make nearly enough for getting up at 5 a.m. every morning. Maybe you remember your first uh, car, getting your driver's license, your first kiss. Maybe you remember those letters that would come about colleges, whether they were too thin, whether they were thick enough, where you were going to get to go. And of course, some of our memories are harder. I remember the awkwardness of being a teenage boy. Um, there were disappointments, times that we, uh, if you're like me, act, acted badly, made poor decisions, hurt someone. There, there are, I have memories that are, are vivid enough I still cringe when I recall them. And of course, some of us have much harder memories. Some of us endured pain. We were hurt. We were harmed. We were abused. And the thing is, those memories are vivid. It doesn't matter when they happened, whether it's from 10 to 30, whether it's earlier, whether it's later. Those, those memories are always vivid. 
but a lot of our memories are most intense in that bump. Because once we get into our 30s, life goes on, right? We settle into the broad parameters that we've established. We sort of live out the trajectory we've set. We, maybe we start a career or a trade or a profession. And uh, when that happens, you know, one week sort of becomes a lot like the next, and one year becomes five years, and pretty soon 40 becomes 50, and all of a sudden you're 62, and you've been the pastor of Portland Mennonite Church for 22 years, and how could that possibly have happened? Um, or if you have kids, it is true what they say, especially about younger kids. The days are long, but the years are short, and all of a sudden your kids are off and running and making their own decisions and making their own memories in their own lives. Those moments run together, and those, so those memories don't get recorded as vividly. And then, then, along the way, there come times when we start to realize that things we had assumed, things we had expected would happen, had hoped would happen, aren't going to happen. I remember uh, my wife Molly and I got married when we were 30, so we're kind of nearing the end of that reminiscence bump. And when we got married, we decided that if we could, we were going to have kids. And if we could, we were going to have two kids. And so two years later, uh, our first child was born. And I remember it very vividly. It was a Saturday afternoon. It was at UCLA Medical Center. And our daughter, Julia, was born. And then two years later, we're living in Lawrence, Kansas. Our second child was born. Again, I remember it very vividly. It was a Monday morning. It was Monday of Holy Week, which is notable for a pastor especially. And it was snowing out, and our daughter, Laura, was born. And it was right about that time that it sort of became clear to me that I had always assumed, I didn't know it, but I'd always assumed, I'd always expected, I'd always looked forward to it, I'd always planned on being the father of a son. And that was not going to happen. And so, you know, Molly and I talked about this, could try for another kid. We decided not to. And all of a sudden, that thing that I had hoped for just wasn't going to be. That happens to all of us, right? It might be that uh, we, 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 we realize we, we are not going to write the great American novel, or we are not going to go to medical school after all, or, or we're not going to get married, or we're not going to reconcile with a parent from whom we've been estranged. And some of those disappointments are deeply personal, and some of those things that just don't seem like they're ever going to happen are much bigger and historic and global, right? I mean, Martin Luther King's dream, that was 1968. Seems like it keeps getting deferred and deferred. Black Lives Matter movement, I mean, in the summer of 2020, a lot of renewed energy for, for racial justice. And that's been hit by an enormous social backlash. Doesn't seem like we have the political will to address economic inequities. Seems like our borders just keep getting harder against refugees seeking relief. There come times when what we expect, what we hope for, what we dream of, what we wait on, just doesn't seem like it's going to happen. And that's the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth that we heard today in Luke chapter 1. Zechariah and Elizabeth are childless. They haven't been able to have kids. We're told that Elizabeth is barren. And by the time that we meet them here in Luke chapter 1, they are, uh, as Luke sort of discreetly puts it, on in years. I think if we were being more clinical, we would just say Elizabeth is postmenopausal. So what they had assumed would happen, what they had expected, hoped for, prayed for, waited on to be parents, hasn't happened. And you can imagine the kind of anguished conversations that had gone on through those years. You can imagine some of the angry prayers that were lifted up. Some of the hard questions that were asked. Why us? 
there's something wrong with us. Maybe is there something wrong with God? You can imagine the pain they felt. You can imagine the pity of the community, the community felt around them. What's interesting to me, though, and I think it's significant, is that in telling this story, Luke makes clear that the, despite the disappointment that they felt, despite the grief that they carried, and this is, this is from verse 6, Luke writes, both of them were righteous before God, living blamelessly according to all the commandments and regulations of the Lord. And then he goes on and tells us that when the time came, Zechariah went with his cohort to serve in the temple. In other words, they lived lives of faith and hope, lives of justice and mercy and love. And as I read the story, I find myself wondering how. How did they do that? How did despair or bitterness or fatalism or just resignation not get the better of them? When life didn't turn out the way they hoped, how did they go on living such whole and holy lives? Well, Zechariah gives us the answer. L literally, Zechariah, the name Zechariah gives us the answer. Remember, in, in the culture of the time, so this runs throughout the Bible, names matter, the meaning of names matter, and Zechariah is a Hebrew name. And so there are three consonants in his name, Z-K-R, because Hebrew words are made up of three consonants. Uh, those three consonants come from a Hebrew root that means remember. And Yah, Zechariah Yah, Yah is short for uh, the name of God that's so holy that Jewish people don't say it. So Zechariah Yah means God remembers. Zechariah and Elizabeth lived in the faith and the hope that God remembers. And that faith and hope runs through the scriptures. Right? Remember the story of Noah and the ark? After the flood, God promises, and this is from Genesis 9, I will remember my covenant that's between you and me and every living creature of all flesh, and the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. And in the Psalms, the writers hold that same faith and hope. In fact, in the Psalms, the writers are so bold as to remind God to remember. And so in Psalm 119, the, the, the psalmist writes, Remember your promise to your servant in which you made me to hope. So Zechariah and Elizabeth, they've heard these stories. They've sung these psalms, and, and they have learned to trust that God remembers, that God remembers God's promises of mercy and justice, that God remembers people who've been enslaved, people who've been sent into exile, that God remembers the widows and the orphans, the ones who are unseen and unheard, that God remembers people whose future has played out, people with nowhere else to go. Zachariah and Elizabeth had learned to trust that they could set their lives, even with the disappointment, even with the grief, amidst the promises of God, and trust that God would remember. And the thing is, if that's all that Luke told us about Zachariah and Elizabeth, if all we got were verses 6 and 7 of chapter 1, that would be a pretty good lesson on its own. They trusted that God remembers. But the lesson doesn't end here. Because in the scriptures, whenever we read of a childless couple, there is almost always more to the story. It's like that, that description, that word barren is like a code word. And there's always a messenger, usually it's an angel, there's always an announcement, and there's always a miraculous birth, and that's what happens in this story, right? Zachariah goes to the temple, he's in an inner chamber, and, and the angel Gabriel appears to him, 
announces that his wife Elizabeth's going to bear a child, the thing that they had been waiting for. Um, he asks what seems to me a very uh, logical question. How exactly is this going to happen? For his temerity, he is silenced, which gives us the comic relief that we saw acted out here earlier. I imagine we can all think what it must have been like for him to go home and with his hands try to explain what he had heard from an angel. And then nine months later, a son is born, and they name him John. And we learn to know him as John the Baptist, the one who was sent to prepare the way of the Lord. And these stories run through the Bible again and again and again because they hold the hope of our faith. So way back at the beginning, the book of Genesis, the story of Abram and Sarah, same story. They're childless. Uh, we're told that Sarah is barren. Again, that code word. Uh, they're also on in years. She's 90, he's 100, which means that their life has played out. Their family line has come to an end. They have no foreseeable future, and they have no capacity within themselves to create a future. And then messengers appear with a promise. It's an announcement that's so absurd that Sarah laughs. It's a promise that she will bear a son, but not only that she'll bear a son, that they will have a family, not just that they'll have a family, but that their family will be as numerous as the stars in the heaven, and even more so, through their family, all of the families of the earth will be blessed. So at a dead end, God creates new life. That's the hope of our faith for each of us and for all of creation. And that's why these stories run through the Bible. The story of Sarah and then Rachel and then Rebecca and then Hannah. And, then, and in a couple of weeks, the most stunning story of all, we're going to hear that the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee named Nazareth a virgin named Mary, and a child will be born for us, a son given to us, and authority shall rest upon his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, his authority shall grow continually, and there shall be endless peace. God remembers. And so the story of Zachariah and Elizabeth and the stories that come before and the story that comes after, they invite us to trust, too, that God remembers, to live in the faith and the hope that God remembers God's promises of mercy and justice, that God remembers us, that God remembers you, even when, especially when we are alone, when we are lonely, when you feel unseen, when you feel unheard, unknown, when you find yourself in a dark valley, when you've lost your way, when you've come to a dead end, God remembers. God remembers God's promise to never leave us or forsake us, to love us, to love all of creation until we are whole again. If we're truthful, there are times that it can be really hard to trust that God remembers. I bet there were times like that for Zechariah and Elizabeth. All those childless years, I'm sure they struggled at times to trust in God. For them, an angel appears, the son is born. It doesn't always work out that way. When we suffer bitter disappointments or hard losses, when we're hurt, when we're betrayed, it can be difficult to trust 
Or when we look around us, you know, when promises of equality have been broken, when borders harden to refugees, when there's too many people who never seem to have enough, it can be hard to believe that God remembers. In those moments, we are called to remember for each other, literally to remember, to put together again. We're all members of the body of Christ, right? Eyes and ears and feet, hands, voices. Together, we are called to remember, to embody the love and the mercy and the kindness and the justice of Jesus so that all of us can be drawn into God's work of making all things new. God remembers. So I've been reading this story of Zechariah this week. I've, I've been thinking about that quote from the acrostic, about that term, the reminiscence bump. And uh, some of you are in that bump. You don't know it because you're in it. Some of you are 10 or 12 or Maybe you're 16 and thinking about your driver's license, or 18 and thinking about college, or 21 and wondering, what do I do now? Or late 20s and thinking about career and marriage and kids, uh, making a lot of choices about who you're going to be, making memories that are going to be vivid later in your life. What I remember is that in that time, you have so much of life ahead of you. What I remember is there's going to be times when you're going to believe that you can do anything. And I hope that you dream big dreams. I hope that you have big successes. But I also remember that uh, you're going to probably run into some disappointments at moments. And there's going to be times that you're going to feel alone. And there's going to be times when you're going to face really big decisions and you're not going to know what to do. And I can't tell you. But I hope that you learn to trust that God remembers. That you learn to trust the one who says, do not be afraid. I am with you. That you learn to trust that the Spirit of God, the Spirit that was present at creation, the Spirit that was in Christ Jesus, the Spirit of love surrounds you and goes with you and will guide you. And when it's hard for you to believe, I hope you'll know that we believe. We believe that God remembers and we believe in you. And we'll do whatever we can to support you, to walk with you, to encourage you all along the way. Now, for those of us who are no longer in the reminiscence bump, those of us who are 40 and 50 and 60 and, you know, Pat Smith last week turned 95, our lives are more settled. Um, there are things that most of us are past the point of waiting for, like Zachariah and Elizabeth in this story. In this story, when Zechariah encounters Gabriel, we're told that he was terrified. He was overwhelmed. He was shaken to the core. Amy Jill Levine, who's a, a Jewish scholar who teaches at a Christian seminary at Vanderbilt, uh, she describes this as good news. She writes, the sense of being shaken up is Advent good news. Christmas should be more than putting up the tree and wrapping the presents. It should give birth to something that shakes up the routine, something that gets us to see the world otherwise. That shaking up is what it means to follow Jesus. 
To love one's enemies is scary. To take up one's cross is terrifying. Yet at the same time, Luke reminds us there is a legacy that carries us forward and a promise that God will remember the covenant and bring about eternal justice. So for us, this story is an invitation to be surprised, to be shaken up, to be startled by the scope of what God means to do. So can we keep our eyes open for an unexpected messenger? Can we keep our ears open for surprising opportunities? And can we keep our hearts open for the startling possibilities of God's love? You know, in this story, um, Zachariah is silenced. And then when John is born, he gets his voice back, and after that, you can't hardly keep him quiet. He breaks into a song. It's called the Benedictus. And it's called the Benedictus because it begins with the word blessed. It begins, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who's looked favorably on his people and redeemed them. And it goes on, thus the Lord has shown the mercy promised to our ancestors and has remembered his holy covenant. And then it ends, by the tender mercy of our God, the dawn from on high will break upon us to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide our feet into the way of peace. Thanks be to God. Amen.